In Session with Dr. Farid Hulakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Hulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week is The Fugitive by Marcel Proust. The Fugitive, this is book six of seven of In Search of Lost Time. Um, so I'm looking forward to reading this one, and the next one would be the last one. Um, I do spread them out a bit, uh, the, the works of fiction, but this one I'm excited to read both of, but I'll read this one first, and then maybe in a month or two finish off the series. So The Fugitive by Marcel Proust. The book of the week from last week that I'll be talking about tonight is The Song of Significance by Seth Godin, uh, A New Manifesto for Teams. And I read Seth Godin's book. Uh, he's read he's written many books, I think more than 20. The Practice, and I really liked uh, the message in that book and how he wrote, and there was a similar um, format for this book different chapters in a way, but also just many sections that that are numbered. So by the end of the book, you're getting to section, you know, 130, 140, um, these little sections that are interrelated. But so as the subtitle says, a new manifesto for teams. And um, a huge thesis that I took from the book is that he was comparing or contrasting management versus leadership and how most of the industrial world or industrialization has been focused on management, but that we should move towards leadership. So um, in his way of conceptualizing management is when you're overseeing what someone is doing, you have to make sure they're doing it right. You're using some kind of surveillance and monitoring and tracking and measuring precisely what they're doing and making sure they do it a certain way. So that's the theme of management. And he shares the story of Frederick Taylor meeting uh, Henry Ford. And basically, um, eventually, first machines were being used to just turn things out quickly. But then we saw that humans can be used essentially as machines. And this led to being able to make many more cars and for much cheaper. But it also took away something. And so this movement towards industrialism is one that Seth Godin is trying to uh, suggest we should move away from. So in leadership, it's more about creating the culture that then allows for people to do whatever it is they need to do to get the job done and to create good work and also to innovate. So there is this theme of seeing uh, human beings not as human resources, but as human beings. So not seeing them as just some thing to uh, extract as much value as you can, as is often the case with industrialization, but actually seeing them as human beings, human individuals, not just a human resource. He shares m many stories of different companies, and he does talk about Amazon and how they are so hyper-focused on how, um, how many 
products their suppliers or the people that work in their warehouses can can move at a certain number of time and they have to meet quotas and it's so cutthroat you know you hear these crazy stories of people peeing in bottles because they don't have time for bathroom breaks if they want to meet their quotas and all sorts of crazy things and he's saying that's a huge problem obviously many people wouldn't agree with that as a good setup but he's saying that that's why uh, Amazon actually has problems where they have such bad turnover people don't stay working there because they are not being treated as human beings and really are just a human resource or a resource that we're trying to extract as much as we can so that would be like the song of industrialism this way of just extracting value seeing people as a component part of a machine trying to just extract as much value and create as much profits as you can and so he's uh, suggesting as the title suggests the song of significance moving towards significant doing work that matters work that is making a change having an impact um, and also before that he he does share when he's mentioning the song of significance, a song of safety. And on the cover of bo the book, you see a, a picture of a bee, a drawing of a bee. And there's a lot of analogies with a beehive and how they function and how that actually, there's a lot we can learn from how they function, where there is, in a way, not even leadership, like there's one leader, but there's a culture of doing things and somehow they manage to do things quite well like such as when they need to find a new home, a new place to um, build their home, they leave their hive and now have 72 hours, three days to find a new place. And they have scouts that go out and each scout goes, to, I forgot how many, maybe five to 10 different locations, uh, things like holes in a tree. It might be a place in someone's home that's a type of suitable place or potentially suitable place for where they can live. And somehow they are, then they come back and they communicate based on the angle of the, the dance they do and how vigorously they're moving. The angle is saying what direction this new location would be. And then the, how vigorously they're moving suggests how excited they are, how good they think it is. And not everyone is a scout and not every scout even, of course, sees the other places that the, the other scouts went to, but somehow they come to a consensus and then all, all of a sudden, all at once, they go to this good place to live, and most of the time they get it right. It doesn't mean they pick the perfect place, but they pick a good enough place. And so he's saying that that's the type of mindset that's better than this idea that there's a person at the top who has all the answers and also is the one with the power and the one who gets all the benefits. That's not really what we should be striving towards. Uh, I also like this theme. He I forgot who he got it from because uh, he mentioned the author, uh, about when we're managing even or when you're leading are you managing or leading to them or with them and what we tend to see is most ways of managing in business is to the person you have to do this you're going to do this and I, you just dictate what the person is going to do and they're supposed to follow those orders rather than managing with them means that you collaborate with them um, and one thing I'll make a note here, I did enjoy the book uh, while also noticing that often when you hear books that are business related, you'll see a lot of, you know, catchphrases or terms like synergy and collaboration and, you know, different things that you're supposed to do and not do that 
can sound really good, but implementing them can be different. Um, it does seem that he really believes what he's talking about in this book, and it's not just lip service. Something I also notice in management-type books, and you see articles where they're trying to find these shortcuts or these tricks. So here's five ways to to make your, your uh, customers think that you care, or 10 ways to be a leader that looks like you're empathic. And really, a lot of it is about looking like the thing, the quality, rather than genuinely doing it. And this is also how we are, are function, or a lot of us are going forward with characteristics. We want to appear whatever the trait is more than actually embody it or, or live that trait. Let's say something like humility. Um, being genuinely humble means that I see myself as I am accurately the right size. But because we want to come off as humble, it seems like we should say, oh, I'm so bad. I didn't, you know, I, everyone else did good. I didn't do good. And this over-exaggerated way that is not even genuine, uh, we sometimes think that's what we need to do to be humble when it's not really what the trait actually is. And so similarly, we can say we want to manage with people rather than manage to them or lead with rather than lead to. Uh, it really comes down to how do you actually execute that or how do you make that happen? This is something as a therapist, I think we work best when we work with our clients rather than working to or rather than dictating to them, you have to do this and don't do that. Really working with them to understand they being the expert on their own life, they're living their experience, um, collaborating with them to figure out what to do or what's best for them to do. And of course, even there, I could sometimes say that, but I might not always execute that or actually perform in that way. And it's something to keep in mind. And even when I'm working with parents, I encourage them often the parent with their kids rather than at their kids or to their kids. Of course, that doesn't mean there's no um, authority or that no matter what the kid says goes, that doesn't make sense. A uh, quick side note, a family member of mine said something that made me laugh. They said that, uh, you know, they have now a, a child in their, a couple of kids in their 20s or 30s, but they were saying that when they were younger, they had to listen to their parents no matter what, and they did. And they said, but by the time they became parents, things changed, and no matter what, they had to listen to their kids. And she was saying, I never really won. I was always on the wrong side of things. Either I was the kid, had to listen to my parents, or then I became a parent, and now whatever the kid says goes. And that's uh, funny, and there's definitely a movement towards that. So I think there's truth in that. That's why it makes it funny. But I don't think that's the, the healthy thing either. So when I say parent with your children, it doesn't mean... Let them make all the rules, uh, never say no to them, um, you know, just anything they say goes, absolutely not. But collaborating with them goes much better than saying you have to do this or not do this, trying to help them understand the whys, help them come up with what works for them, that works much better. And I think that's just uh, parenting leadership and also working in a, in a business or collaborating in some way that tends to work better. Um, he, he talked about culture, and I, I liked how he talked about culture. And in this case, he's talking about culture of a, like a company or, you know, working on a project. And his definition is a simple one. People like us do things like this. And based on how I emphasize it, you could look at it two different ways. People like us do things like this, like we do these kinds of things, or we, we do things like this. So this is the way we do things. And I think both actually 
um, apply. But even more, that second one, that people like us do things like this. This is the way that we do things with, let's say, respect. Or is it actually cutthroat? Is it um, we value just performance or do we value, yes, performance matters in executing, but how you treat one another and what the culture of the company looks like. So I really did like that. And he shares how culture defeats strategy. So if you have a good culture, it's going to do better than if you just have a good strategy or you think is the right way to get to your plans or your goals. And I totally agree with that. And I've been in different organizations. um, And you often see how the culture does trickle down from the top to the bottom. And so in my internships, I remember um, being in most of them were really good uh, experiences where you felt that if the supervisors or the people that were at the top had created a culture of understanding of even having their own genuine humility that they would acknowledge if they made a mistake and they can share that they made a mistake to create a a situation and a context where it was about growth and learning not you have to show you already know or show that um, you don't make mistakes and so when you see the person who's the head clinician at the clinic acknowledging mistakes or trying to learn from you that of course will encourage everyone else to one feel empowered but then two to acknowledge their own mistakes to allow for their own growth and I also had experiences at places where it didn't feel that way and so you felt that the interns who were of course questioning and doubting themselves because they're new to this but they felt that they had to constantly prove that they were good enough or Um, better than the others because of this feeling of this competitiveness and the sense that you better know already before you even have the opportunity to learn. So um, I liked his uh, discussions about culture and creating the right type of culture and that actually leaders create the conditions for culture rather than a manager says that you have to do exactly this. A leader is more creating those values or creating that conditions for the, the cultures to come about. So the book was definitely more focused on um, business and, and corporations and those kinds of things. But really, we're all doing work. And as the title of the book um, says, The Song of Significance, he, he mentions that you're going to do work, you're going to sing a song in your life, then we would be better off making it a song of significance, something that you value that is helpful, that is innovative, that is making a positive change in the world, and even how we look at success rather than looking at what we get and how much money you make, but how much of a positive change and impact you're making in the world. So found those aspects of the book interesting and, and agreed with that as, as well. The book, again, is The Song of Significance by Seth Godin. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In the first segment, I was talking about the book, The Song of Significance by Seth Godin. He had a kind of like a chart or like a square where based on two factors, stakes and trust. So you can have work that is um, low stakes or high stakes, and you have a, a type of culture where there's low trust or high trust. And of course, as you can imagine, what we're looking for is high stakes and high trust, and that's where you get to significance, where he says 
when you have high stakes and high trust, um, that's where humans get to be human beings and the magic happens. You can create magic together. And um, trust, although not the same thing as psychological safety, but I think they're definitely uh, interconnected, interrelated. And, you know, he also talks about, um, you know, that word safety. He doesn't talk about that, but he talks about soft skills, as they're often called in business. And so usually soft skills means kind of like people skills or uh, how someone is able to work well with others or um, create a good environment and how they act and how that word soft can in a way, I think, makes them seem not that significant going off that title, the song of significance, like they don't really matter. The, the other ones are the real ones, the work, um, kind of like a doctor, we might think a doctor. It's nice if they have good bedside manner and, you know, can be kind and compassionate and empathic and, and all those things. But really a doctor is based on how they diagnose and prescribe treatments. And that's what a doctor is uh, when really we see those soft skills. They're not just soft and fluffy and nice. They actually lead to tangible results. People do better when they have a doctor who is compassionate and caring. It's not just something nice or something on the side. It, it is really part of treatment, how um, we, we treat the individual. And so similarly, I think the phrase psychological safety can feel that way to people when people think, um, that a business or a, yeah, the business culture has psychological safety. I think for a lot of people, they hear that thing. Oh, that means it's like very sensitive and politically correct, or, uh, is going to be making sure no one gets upset or triggered. And it's not that at all. Um, when you have psychological safety in a workforce in a community, people feel safe to do things like actually disagree um, and say something that they don't think is right. Or if they um, want to share a new idea, they're not afraid that if it's not a great idea or if maybe it's even a bad idea, that they won't face negative consequences. So you're not worried about getting humiliated. You're not worried about um, having disagreeing even with the boss or whoever is the the leader or manager of a group or even the whole company, there's this space to um, innovate. Actually, he talked about the the person who created Kinko's. Um, now they're usually called FedEx Kinko's because they were bought by FedEx. But uh, if you're old enough to remember Kinko's copies and he started these stores, I think first he started at a college in California where he went to school, but then slowly uh, built out. I don't actually if you went to school there, but a college in California. And uh, one of the things he would do is he would go to the different stores and ask people like what's going right or what's happening in the store, basically asking them, what are you doing that's working that might even be not part of the quote unquote protocol or what they're asked to do. Um, but what have they figured out works trusting that those people who are there on the front lines, they're interacting with customers are they're seeing what's working and not working and might come up with good strategies. And then he would take those things and go to other stores and teach them how to do those things that were working to, to learn from them. So there was this um, psychological safety to innovate, to create, to come up with your own ideas. And so when we talk about psychological safety in the workforce or in some kind of a workplace, that means that you feel this sense that 
It doesn't mean that performance doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that you could do whatever you want or that no one will ever get upset with you. Actually, if you have a good culture with psychological safety, you will have the sense that you actually want to perform well. You will want to create something great if you're invested in what the company is doing and you uh, have bought into what they're doing. You want to do that thing. And so you're actually going to want to perform well, not from fear of punishment and a pink slip, which is often what we think of as the way to motivate workers is out of fear. Or in general, that's how we motivate is fear. Even parents think, okay, if I make my kid scared to do the wrong thing, they'll start doing the right thing. Or if I make them, you know, punish them really harshly in a way that they're scared of, they'll they'll act right. When usually that actually doesn't work. Um, and when you use fear, all you do is you create the circumstances where, one, you ruin the relationship between you and that person, um, whether it's your child or your, you know, someone who's working under you. Um, so that is significant because I I see this a lot with parents that say, well, I yelled at my kid and they did what I wanted to do, so it worked. And that's a very, uh, you know, interesting phrasing. It worked. It might have worked in that moment as in you got a desired behavior, but I hope we're not just thinking about your child as just this one moment and what they just did, but a bigger picture of your relationship with them and also who they become. And so if they see that you're you're this thing that they're so afraid of and terrified of, that's obviously going to uh, damage the relationship significantly. But what we tend to see when we use fear is the desire is not to do the good thing, it's to avoid punishment. And so um, we find ways to avoid um, getting punished, but not do the right thing in general. So, okay, I, I get you know in trouble or I get hit if I hit my little brother or sister, I'll just do it when no one's watching. So it's not that I learned that uh, being gentle with them is good. I just learned to, to actually do it when no one's looking. And if I get hit and one, that's going to teach me that this is okay to do, even if you're trying to teach me it's not okay to do. I always find that funny to be like, I'm going to hit you to show you that hitting is wrong. Um, but also it's going to more than likely put some more anger and aggression into your child. So they're going to be more likely to hit their little sibling when they're not looking. So when we use fear, we might think it's going to work and that people won't do the right thing unless we make them afraid. And that could be different from consequences or actual tangible results of what happens. But when we create psychological safety, this now creates a space to not just make mistakes as in, oh, everyone makes mistakes, but that if we want to try to make something good, we have to be willing to try some things that are going to turn out to not be good. Okay, you want to come up with a new creative idea? There's no way to have um, a writing session or to create some piece of work, whatever it is, without the first draft being bad to begin with. And not only that, even before you have a first draft, some of the ideas of what to even do or write about to not be good or to turn out being um, not used at all. However, some of those might turn into something or later on be used. And so having all these different ideas out there, that's what creates something good. So in a way, there's this safety to play. And by play doesn't mean doing something frivolous, but play as in to be creative, to let things happen. And so I was mentioning this uh, before, this being in different situations where I remember trying to learn, but I could only learn if I felt safe to say, I don't know. 
or felt safe to say, I need more help here, or safe to say, you know, the way you're doing it, here's another way. What about this? And even allow the people who might have more experience than me to at least hear a different perspective, or even for them to let me know why that doesn't work. But if I wasn't able to voice that, it wouldn't actually uh, give me that space to learn and to grow. And so um, Seth Godin in the book talks about these companies that have that. I don't think he used the phrasing psychological safety. It might have been in there. But to me, that theme seemed to be there of having that sense of psychological safety, giving that sense of trust to your people you're working with, collaborating with that, you know, we want to do this thing. And if you want to get the job done with us, let's do it together. But not this, I have to stand over you and stand over your shoulder and count how many keystrokes you do and um, how many items you deliver exactly at this moment, because I don't think you're going to do it. I don't trust you um, to do the right thing. So if you have a team, even if it's a, you know, the, to me, this book wasn't just about a corporation or starting your own business or having a business. It definitely um, was relevant and related to that. But it's also just something to keep in mind when you're trying to do anything, any kind of team, even a family is a team. And if you have that sense of psychological safety, then first of all, people do feel better. So there is that, but it's not just they feel better as in um, everything is going to be easy and nothing matters, but in the sense that we're going to give each other the space to, to be human, to make mistakes, but also to innovate, to be creative and to allow them to do that. Um, you know, as I'm saying that, I recognize even as a team of one individually, we have different degrees of how much of that psychological safety we give to ourselves. Am I allowed to make mistakes? Am I allowed to say, I don't know, even to myself? Am I allowed to be creative and come up with ideas? Some of them won't be good at all. Some of them, I might laugh at how not good they are later on. Um, but do I give myself that space to explore and to play without making it seem like I have to know everything or I have to already know all the answers or get it right every single time. When I do that to myself, I stifle my own creativity and not just in creativity as in making a work of art, which of course it will do that, but even my creativity and my aliveness and how I interact with others. If I always have to say the right thing well, then I don't have the freedom to play a little bit, to try a joke, to try interacting in a different way. I'll just keep doing the comfortable thing rather than trying something new. So uh, psychological safety sounds like this new age or this, um, you know, I think people sometimes mistake it for this new way where people are coddled, where we're making things easy for everyone and there's a lot of this mindset, like the old way is like, you know, the old school hard way of doing things is the right way to really push ourselves and not take it easy. And there's definitely something to be said about work ethic and having high standards. But this notion that fear-based discipline and fear-based motivating is the way to go, I completely disagree with. Giving people that sense that, yes, there's accountability, yes, there's consequences, but not in the sense that you have to be terrified of making a mistake. Uh, what we often do is we give our kids or people that we're managing standards that we wouldn't even keep to ourselves. We make mistakes and we try to learn things, 
but sometimes we think that we have to punish in a way where a mistake is unacceptable. Uh, I'll see parents telling their kids, you can't do this, or why did you do that, and then punish them when they themselves make mistakes all the time. Um, okay, they stayed on their phone too long today, or they played video games too long today. Yes, we should definitely have these boundaries and standards that help them, but have any of us not stayed on social media longer than we would have liked or think is good for us? Of course we have. So if we're going to be human with them, we can have consequences, we can have conversations, but we also want to have that psychological safety and that space for them to be human as they learn and they grow. So uh, as I read the book, I thought about this term because I see it used a lot and sometimes misused or misunderstood to think that if there's psychological safety, it means there's a certain softness or there's a uh, lackadaisical mindset or attitude and this feeling of let's make sure no one gets hurt. That's not what the psychological safe part is. It's psychologically safe to disagree, to make mistakes, to try things and to even question the authority. That's more what we're talking about there. All right, let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So uh, the book today, The Song of Significance by Seth Godin, and doing significant work, I think, is something that we all would, would like to have. I think, of course, not everyone has such an opportunity uh, to to do that due to having to, you know, take care of family and bills and things that they might not have the opportunities that everyone has. So at times that is a that is really a privilege to get to approach your life or your work in that way. Um, another movement that we're seeing, uh, and he does touch on it a bit in the book, but with things like AI, ChatGPT, and the ways that we're able to advance with, with technology, um, there is this uh, notion of many jobs that people have becoming obsolete, and they already have. And so I've seen many predictions about this 30%, 50%, 70% of jobs by a certain point that we currently have will no longer exist or be needed because machines can do them. Okay, let's say driverless cars, so um, Uber and Lyft drivers and even possibly truck drivers would be taken away. Things like ChatGPT can do so much of work that involves creating, um, you know, writing something. I think there's even been signs that they can replace lawyers in certain ways um, or certain things that lawyers can do or that is done for for law, but even detecting things in medicine. So there's all this movement um, and advancement, but of course this advancement like always leads to transitions and, and uh, of course it would be, I think, foolhardy think I can tell you what's going to happen with the advent of all these technologies and even to know that it's going to be good or bad and of course I, I think it's not going to be that simple just look at it as good and bad but I do feel more optimistic about some aspects of it because I what I hope to see happen so I guess it's the hope and the optimism and I don't know how realistic it is but I think that what we're going to see happen or what we first need to see happen is the book talking about this, you know, insignificant work or the way that in industrialization, uh, the human being has become a human worker, a human resource and not a full human being, um, is that the ways we look at work will be redefined 
over time. Uh, I think we're so used to it, especially somewhere like the United States, where work is something you do 40, 50 hours a week. And if you're doing less than that, it means you're lazy or you're not working hard or you don't have good work ethic. You should be busy in that way. Um, but that doesn't have to be the case. That doesn't have to be what work looks like or has to, to even uh, function or the time that it has to take. And, you know, if you ask most people that work an office job that's 40, 50 hours, how much actual work they do, most people will be able to admit that they do it in way less. And this is why we see movements towards, for example, four-day work weeks in different offices. And usually they find that they function just fine. People do just the same amount of work in less time. They don't need that extra time. Or actually, uh, I was hearing Seth Godin talking about, uh, he talks about meetings in the book and how they're usually just uh, a way of reinforcing status in one way, some ways, the the leader, manager, whoever is talking and everyone else listens or mostly listens. But, um, you know, they really are often a waste of time, something we, you know, there's that whole joke of this meeting could have been an email. Um, and really is often the case that there really isn't a lot of benefit to it. So uh, I heard him in an interview saying how if people aren't going to even cut the me- number of meetings, at least cut seven minutes off of every meeting that you have, and you'll find that you still get the job done. You'll still get everything you need in that meeting done. And with seven minutes less, you'll just probably waste, you know, some less, uh, some time, uh, less time than you normally would have. So uh, I think there will be a movement towards this mindset that you have to be working that much. But also there has to be some pretty big changes in how um, wealth and capital and all these things get distributed. Uh, I'm not an economic expert, but I've read some in economic stuff, some understanding of it, but not enough to give a complete picture. But the ways that we um, use our resources will have to change a bit, where it's not just that some have many and many have some or have almost none. That's not going to work. We can have a functioning world where everyone has enough. Um, Doesn't mean everyone has exactly the same, but everyone has enough. And so there will have to be a shift, I believe, away from the ways that we are functioning currently, that if, uh, you know, some people have a lot and other people have to work and work for them in order to survive, that type of uh, framework I don't think is going to work and shouldn't be the one we have even now, but going forward. So people will need to work less. I think that's actually very good. I sometimes have envisioned this way of of doing things where if we look at our ancestors or extant hunter-gatherer tribes, uh, they don't work so much. Sometimes, uh, I'm sure it depends on different factors and climates and things of that sort, but we sometimes might have this idea that hunter-gatherers were working nonstop just to have enough food to survive. And it doesn't seem to be the case. I, I forgot the author's name uh, now, but I read a book called Work, uh, I think it was a couple of years ago now. And it was showing that they actually worked less than we do um, to, to survive. And so they have other time to connect and be with one another and have relationships, which when we look at all of our research on happiness and long-term well-being, we see that the most important thing is our relationships and and love and so i think my hope is that we'll have more time for that so the way i see it we had that lifestyle before where we did have more time together 
to connect and, and be with one another in smaller groups. And of course, now the global community that we have now, but we would spend time with those close and loved ones uh, more. And then with the advent of things like farming and the technologies that came about, we actually moved away from that. And so life became more about work and some people worked a lot and others didn't have to work at all or very little and they just benefited from it and we always had these systems where uh, as Thomas Piketty talks about in Capital and Ideology there was always a, a ideology that justified the inequality that existed at some time uh, and so for sometimes it was these different stratus uh, of, of for example being noble so you're somehow um, this nobility makes it so you deserve more and others are in the lower caste or system and so they have to just work and it's the accepted way. Somehow it makes sense. And right now we see things like uh, a perceived meritocracy, which does not exist, doesn't mean working hard doesn't make a difference, but it means that the ways that wealth is distributed is not based solely on on merit, on who works the hardest and the best. There's much more that goes into it to, to make it not a level playing field. And so there's always an ideology to justify what why this inequality exists. But what we have had is that people were having to work more to serve this type of system. And, um, you know, this mindset we have of serving the economy rather than the economy serving us or serving the whole human community. Uh, and so we've had this type of life where people have to work and because of their work, they don't have enough time to spend with their loved ones to be around um, and, and to develop and cultivate those relationships. And my hope is, and maybe it's an optimistic one, but one that with the advent of technology going further and these things like AI, chat GPT, uh, robotics, and all these machines that can do work that humans are currently doing, um, I, I'm sure there will be transitions and upheaval and it won't just be smooth and easy. But my hope is that eventually we get to a place where we will function as, as a society that will have the needs and things taken care of and will still continue to make advancements. But also uh, people will have more time to do the human things, interact with one another. And actually even um, to do more work that is human needed in the sense that there's some things that we need a human to do. For example, caretaking work uh, for people, let's say, with different levels of disability and including going into old age where they would benefit from having um, a human, the human care and that human touch in taking care of them. We will have, I think, more openings and availability for that type of work and that type of service to be done when we have more of those resources. So uh, there's lots of work that I think we'll see that we still need humans to do in those more relationship and relating types of way, ways. But then also, most importantly, we would open up the possibility and opportunity for people to go back to spending more time with their family and loved ones and relationships, which at the end of the day we see is what's most important about our human experience are those relationships. So sometimes we think of how advanced our societies are now, when we think of civilization, we think of the technology and the things that are there. And so, of course, as I'm sitting here enjoying so much of the fruits of that advancement, I don't want to say it's obviously bad and um, it should have never happened. 
It's hard to imagine what it's like without having the things that you've enjoyed your whole life. But at the same time, I think there's so much that's, you know, uncivilized about how we are civilized. For example, in the United States, if you have a child and your child is sick, I, I, I was um, saw some friends who had children and, and both their children had some health concerns, but one had many health concerns, and that on top of all the incredible stress and hardship and heartache that they had been through, just dealing with the, the, the ailments and the procedures and all that, but the heartbreaking additional stress of paying for things and that that being a stress and even seeing that they would, you know, if they didn't have insurance, what it would be like uh, or the costs that are there, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars for for things, you know, is that, you know, part of civilization that a child is, is sick and we are, um, the money part of it is the most important part. To me, that's very, very uncivilized. It's not something we should think of as being advanced. So think that our technologies are advanced, but if we are advancing technologies, but using them in inhumane ways or not giving access to people to be helped with those technologies, how much of, a, of an advancement is that? You know, how advanced and proud should we feel of those things? Uh, I saw uh, this, little, I think it was like on Instagram, a video of people in the UK guessing how much different medical devices and procedures and things cost in the United States. And they were just shocked at, for example, an EpiPen being several hundred dollars. Um, and this is a potentially life-saving type of a um, medicine to have on hand, but really it's unavailable to many people because of how expensive it is. So when we think of technology or we think of society and civilization advancing and becoming more civilized, I think we have to be wary to not just think that economic growth and the current framework and technological advancement necessarily means we're more advanced in a human way, in a moral way, and how we are as a the human character of society. So my hope, and again, I could see it being optimistic just based on what I said of how things currently are. My hope is that as we see things like AI and different technologies making many jobs obsolete, it won't make people obsolete. It won't make humans obsolete because their value wasn't in them being workers to begin with. Um, their value came from being members of society and contributing in a variety of ways, most importantly, uh, in their relationships and how they relate with one another, not just that they helped make a product or so much of a product that then sold and contributed to the economy in some way. So that's my hope for what's going to come about in the future. I definitely can't say it's happening. And I, as I said, I do imagine there's going to be a lot of um, difficult steps along the way because the people who have the power and who are still benefiting from things being the way they are, they're not going to want to give it up. That's just what we see happening throughout history, uh, repeatedly, even even currently, when we look at the regime in Iran, it doesn't seem that we can explain what they're doing in ways of actually trying to do good or that there's some benefit for others. It's just to continue holding on to the power. The unfortunate thing is that the people that have power usually are the ones that make the rules about who has power. And so it continues until uh, things change. Enough people make a change or enough people come together to make a change. So uh, I could 
foresee that the people who have power with how things are economically will continue to exploit that and now use these new technologies to make them even more wealthy and easier ways. And so to transition to what I'm hoping for might take some time, but I am hopeful for that. I think we'll have the possibility that we can actually spend more time connected with one another, that people taking, for example, paternity leave and maternity leave will be just something so accepted and expected that maybe we would be surprised if someone doesn't take it, but it would be available to everyone. I am hopeful for that. You can call me an optimist, but that's that's my story and I'm sticking to it. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. Big thank you to Ghazali here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Farid Alakwi, Zan Zendegi Azadi.